Well, welcome to our course. Uh, we're very happy to be here with you. And um, I am honored to uh, introduce Dr. Connie Benson, who's going to present on new antiretroviral drugs and development and novel ART treatments. Dr. Connie Benson is professor of medicine at UCSD, and she is the head of the infectious disease training program director um, for the last 14 years. She has served on the executive committees of CIFAR and ARI at UCSD. She's a member of HIVMA, and she has had major leadership roles, including serving as the chair of the ACTG from 2003 to 2010 in the AIDS Clinical Trials Group. She's an author of over 120 peer-reviewed articles and um, is an expert in our field, so very uh, honored to have her here at the course, and thank you for presenting. Hello, I'm Dr. Constance Benson from the University of California, San Diego. I'm going to be talking with you about new antiretroviral drugs in development and novel ART regimens, focusing primarily on new data presented at CROI 2020. This slide depicts my financial relationships with commercial entities and those of my spouse and the learning objectives for this presentation, both of which you can review at your leisure in your syllabus. I'm going to start with a question I always pose to myself. Do we need new antiretroviral drugs or regimens? This slide depicts the current recommended regimens for first-line antiretroviral therapy in people living with HIV in, as published by the DHHS and IASUSA guidelines panels. Um, I'll just diverge for a moment to indicate that the IASUSA guidelines are undergoing revision as we speak, but you can see from the table depicted on this slide that all of the currently recommended first-line regimens include an integrase inhibitor and nucleoside analogs. Although there are a few exceptions based on special populations and certain ones of these regimens, most are once-daily, well-tolerated, low barrier or high barrier to resistance regimens. And these are some of the factors that we consider when developing new drugs for treatment of HIV. Another important factor in the development of new drugs is whether we need to target antiretroviral drug resistance. This is primarily now a consequence of individuals who have virologic failure on their current regimen or their first-line therapies. And in an, an attempt to evaluate this question over time, this presentation at CROI 2020 looked at 84,600 de-identified samples from patients in the U.S., ranging in date of sample collection from 2012 to 2018. Overall, about 33% of the samples tested had reduced susceptibility to at least one antiretroviral drug. However, more importantly, there was a decreasing prevalence over time of multi-class ARB resistance, and this decreasing prevalence here depicted in a bar graph and in uh, overall prevalence um, curves here, the decrease in multi-class ARB resistance corresponded to the increasing availability of newer, more effective drugs and formulations that had more favorable cross-resistance profiles. So when put together with decreasing drug resistance overall, more tolerable um, 
and more effective drugs and formulations, it may be that there is less pressure to produce and develop new, dr- and develop new drugs. And this has been true in presentations at many of our annual conferences over the last few years. But obviously not everybody has absence of drug resistance or is able to tolerate all of the regimens that we currently use for first-line therapy. So although the need may be less compelling, there's still an ongoing need for development of new drugs. So the first one I'm going to review is GS6207. This is a novel first-in-class capsid inhibitor drug that has a broad Uh, that is active against a broad range of HIV-1 isolates, including those resistant to existing ARV classes. Although this is actually a presentation from CROI 2019, I'm using this slide just to introduce this compound for this audience. The drug modulates stability and or transport of capsid complexes in the intracellular milieu and therefore inhibits multiple processes necessary for viral replication, in particular capsid assembly as depicted here. The drug is highly active in picomolar concentrations and is more potent than many of our current antiretroviral drugs. This, too, is a presentation from CROI 2019, but again, I just want to summarize that in a the first randomized blinded placebo-controlled phase one trial, a single ascending subcutaneous dose was administered to healthy volunteers and compared with placebo. As you can see from the figure depicting the plasma concentrations and here in text, there were no deaths, no serious adverse events, no grade three or four laboratory abnormalities, and prolonged exposure with multiple concentrations was achieved for at least 24 weeks with this compound in healthy volunteers. At doses greater than or equal to 100 milligrams, plasma concentrations were above the plasma-adjusted EC95 Um, out to 12 weeks, supporting at least a 12-week dosing interval for this agent. So fast forward to CROI 2020, GS6207 was evaluated in people living with HIV in a Phase 1b randomized double-blind placebo-controlled dose-ranging study. Overall, the median age was 33, mostly men, although a reasonable distribution of people of color and a baseline CD4 cell count of about 450, 82% of these individuals were ART naive, and the median duration of follow-up was 225 days or the last visit. In this study, several different doses of GS6207 were administered subcutaneously and compared with placebo. The primary endpoint was antiviral activity at day 10, and patients were then rolled over to Bictegravir, TAF, and FTC. The 10-day antiviral activity of GS6207 is depicted here, showing in graphic form the antiviral activity 
demonstrating an HIV RNA decline over 10 days, ranging from 1.4 to 2.3 log copies per ml. The drug was generally safe and well-tolerated. The most common adverse events were injection site reactions, and the only grade 3 or 4 abnormalities were laboratory-based with elevations of CPK and amylase thought to be related to the injections themselves. This drug was also studied and data presented at CROI 2020 using an oral formulation in healthy volunteers. And in this study, single doses of up to 1,800 milligrams given orally were shown to be generally safe and well-tolerated with a half-life that was 11 to 13 days, again supporting less frequent dosing also with the oral formulations. And the overall exposures appeared to be less than dose proportional. There was no food effect, and both the data presented from people living with HIV using the subcutaneous dose and the data presented from healthy volunteers using the oral dosing support continued development of this compound for future studies in antiretroviral therapy. The next drug I'd like to talk about is MK8591. This, again, going back to a study presented in CROI 2019, is a novel nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor, which is a unique mechanism of action. This drug was potent against most resistant mutants. The triphosphate compound, or uh, metabolite, had an IC50 for HIV that is greater than fourfold lower than that for other NRTIs, and the triphosphorylated metabolite had a long intracellular half-life and the potential for multiple low-dose options and a high barrier to resistance based on concentrations given or in the laboratory once Fast forward now to CROI 2020 and data on MK8591, now called Islatravir, were presented from a Phase 2b trial in people living with HIV. In a somewhat complicated study design that I'll walk you through, one of three different doses of Islatravir were combined with Duraverine or 3TC, and were compared with a control arm of Duraverine, 3TC, and Tenofovir. Comparable placebos were included in each of the arms in this part one, and at the end of week 24, individuals were then transitioned to a two-drug dose-ranging regimen of Islatravir plus Duraverine and compared with continuation of Duraverine, 3TC, and Tenofovir. A phase or part three maintenance portion of the study is not being presented, but will include Islatravir in one of the best in the winning dose from the part two phase of the trial in combination with Duraverine. But the data presented at CROI 2020 represent the part two phase 2b dose ranging component. And in figure two, we have the primary endpoint based on virologic outcomes showing roughly roughly comparable activity across all of the treatment arms 
with the exception of the Islatravir 2.25 milligram dose, which performed slightly worse than the other regimens and the control arm. Metabolic outcomes were evaluated in this study, and again, a busy slide, but I'll just summarize primarily focusing on the combined Islatravir deraverine regimen arms in this bar graph compared with the control arms. And as you can see, there were no substantial differences in weight change at week 48. And when looking at the mean percent change in bone mineral density at week 48, you can see that the arms that did not contain tenofovir performed slightly better in terms of reduction in bone mineral density than the control arm that did contain tenofovir. Mean change in fasting metabolic parameters also reflected the uh, comparable activity of the Islatravir deraverine two-drug arms and the comparison with the control arm reflecting deraverine 3TC and tenofovir. But overall, the two-drug regimen of Islatravir and deraverine had minimal effect on most body composition and metabolic parameters and supporting the ongoing development of this two-drug regimen in phase three of the trial or the maintenance phase of the study. The next new drug I'm going to highlight is referred to as an allosteric HIV-1 integrase inhibitor, and the number here is STP0404, and this too is a new class of antiretrovirals that targets the LEGF P75 binding site of the viral integrase. So it differs from strand transfer integrase inhibitors that we currently use in clinical practice. It interferes with integrase viral RNA interactions and results in viral RNA mislocalization, therefore has a very different target than the current integrase inhibitors. It demonstrates significant activity against raltegravir-resistant strains and suppresses HIV-1 rebound from latently infected primary T-cell reservoirs in vitro. In, In vitro and in animal testing, no toxicity issues have yet been identified and the agent is currently being developed as a long-acting antiretroviral drug with either an oral or parenteral formulation. Phase 1 clinical trials have were due to be started shortly in second quarter of 2020, and hopefully we'll see results from this agent in CROI 2021. The next novel compound I'll talk about is a VPU inhibitor called BIT-225. VPU, if you recall, is an HIV-1-encoded membrane protein with regulatory functions that enhance HIV replication fitness and promote innate immune evasion in multiple cell types, so a way of HIV evading innate immunity. BIT-225 is a VPU inhibitor, 
that inhibits HIV-1 replication in vitro. And at CROI 2020, a randomized clinical trial compared BIT-225 in one of two different doses with placebo, all of which were added to antiretroviral therapy in 36 treatment-naive people with HIV who were starting treatment. At the end of a 12-week period, markers of viral replication and immune function endpoints were evaluated, and these data are presented here. Plasma HIV-1 RNA levels declined similarly across all cohorts. Significant changes, however, were noted in multiple immune markers observed in the BIT-225 arms compared to placebo. Notably, activated macrophage as depicted by macrophages as depicted by soluble CD163 markers were significantly reduced in the 200 milligram BIT225 cohort compared to antiretroviral therapy alone, and there were significant increases in activated CD8, CD4, and NK cells in the BIT225 cohorts compared with placebo. Enhanced NK cell recruitment and activation suggested that one observation was the elimination of HIV-infected cells mediated via VPU cell signaling with this agent. The authors concluded that the addition of BIT-225 to antiretroviral therapy was associated with unique stimulation of multiple components of the innate immune system. T-cell, NK-cell, soluble CD163 and IL-21 marker data suggested the addition of BIT-225 to ART stimulates antigen presentation and T-cell and NK-cell priming and cell signaling. This may be associated with induction of changes to the immune system that are similar to those noted in long-term non-progressors, and the immune-modulating effects associated with this agent may improve HIV-1-induced immune activation and its consequences or outcomes. So more to follow on this novel agent. So I'd like to turn now to some of the data related to novel long-acting injectable antiretrovirals and where we are with the further development of these for clinical practice. We've seen a number of presentations over the last two years of the cabotegravir and ropivirine long-acting formulations studied in clinical trials. Presented at this year's CROI were the Week 48 primary endpoint data from the Atlas 2M study. This, if you will recall, is a phase three randomized multicenter parallel group non-inferiority or open label study. Atlas phase three looked at cabotegravir and ropivirine given once every four weeks and compared to Atlas standard of care arm in a large clinical trial. Individuals who finished or completed this trial were screened and subsequently randomized to receive either oral cabotegravir plus ropivirine, except those individuals who already had received this or were already on this from the ATLAS trial. And then at week four, were randomized to a maintenance phase of every eight weeks or every four weeks of cabotegravir plus ropivirine long-acting. At week 96, individuals had the option to continue their randomized cabotegravir regimen 
Q4 weeks or Q8 weeks in an extension phase, but the data presented at CROI 2020 were the primary endpoint at week 48. This slide depicts the baseline characteristics for individuals enrolled in this study, and without going through all of the data here, suffice it to say that the Q8 week and Q4 week um, treatment arms had comparable parameters and demographics at baseline, as well as median body mass index and CD4 cell counts. This slide depicts the 48-week virologic outcomes and showed overall non-inferiority for primary and secondary endpoints using an intent-to-treat analysis. The Q8 week and Q4 week um, cabotegravir and ropivirine LA arms had comparable virologic non-response, comparable virologic success, and comparable numbers of individuals with no virologic data available. In the primary endpoint and in the key secondary endpoint of suppression of to less than 50 copies, both regimens were non-inferior in this analysis. The conclusions of the authors were that the every eight-week dose arm was highly effective and non-inferior to the every four-week dose arm. Virologic non-response was infrequent and confirmed virologic failure was low overall and similar in both arms with virologic suppression maintained at comparable levels in both arms. Both regimens were well tolerated, had comparable safety profiles with injection site reactions being the most common. The median duration of these was about three days and 98% were less than grade one or two in severity. In looking at patient preference, questionnaires, the Q8 week dose was preferred over oral dosing and over the Q4 week regimen by individuals enrolled in the study. And we look forward to the Q8 week dose moving forward in clinical practice with an effective and well-tolerated approach to maintenance therapy in people living with HIV. We've also seen a number of iterations of the FLARE study results. This one also presented at CROI 2020 were the uh, week 98 results from the phase three randomized trial comparing the antiviral activity of IM, cabotegravir, and ropivirine LA versus the continuation of dolutegravir, abacavir, and 3TC in treatment-naive individuals. So not rolling over from another trial, but treatment-naive coming in. In the induction phase, patients received, all patients received dolutegravir, abacavir, and 3TC and were then randomized to an oral uh, induction regimen of cabotegravir and ropivirine or continuation of the control arm and then at week four received intramuscular monthly doses of cabotegravir and ropivirine. The 96-week data were presented at CROI uh, 2020 and an extension phase of long-acting IM injections is continuing from this study. And suffice it to say, similar to the data from the other cabotegravir ropivirine studies, plasma concentrations after IM cabotegravir and ropivirine were comparable to those during oral therapy. There were no virologic failures in the long-acting arm. The majority of individuals 
who had injection site reactions had mild ones, and they resolved in less than or equal to seven days. The virologic response were comparable in all parameters, primary and secondary endpoints measured. And at week 96, participants, only 3.2% of participants in each arm had HIV RNA levels greater than or equal to 50 copies per ml, demonstrating the non-inferior non-inferiority at week 96 of this regimen that had previously also been established at week 48. One residual question for all of us is what happens if patients stop these long-acting cabotegravir rilpivirine regimens? This was also a nice study presented at CROI 2020 looking at the pharmacokinetics with frequent sampling after patients in the LATTE 2 trials and the ATLAS trials stopped their final long-acting cabotegravir rilpivirine injection. And following treatment discontinuation, one could detect cabotegravir and rilpivirine in plasma for up to one year following uh, discontinuation of the intramuscular regimens. However, in looking at the PK and the declination of levels over time, the authors of this study concluded that the use of alternative antiretroviral regimen selection after stopping the long-acting regimen was not going to show a particular limitation related to the PK uh, decline of these two drugs in plasma, and that although the use of CYP3A inhibitors or UGT1A1 inhibitors or inducers could decrease or increase cabotegravir or relpivirine clearance, other regimens are likely, unlikely to be affected based on the PK evaluation here. So, uh, at least with regard to pharmacokinetics, uh, alternative ART regimens may be uh, safely administered. Um, resistance continues to be a question that we often will ask. Um, the last couple of drugs I just want to highlight in my closing remarks are a novel formulation of tenofovir in development based on the use of long-acting lipid nanocrystals by high-pressure homogenization and looking at four formulations here in a rat model for pharmacokinetics and in intracellular levels. These formulation modifications extended the half-life and improved the potency of the prodrug and tenofovir diphosphate concentrations and achieved concentrations that were sustained for at least 28 days at half the TAF dose that is currently being used in clinical practice. Where this compound will go in development remains to be established, but an interesting new formulation of tenofovir. And the last compound I'll review is VM1500A, which is a novel potent NNRTI with broad-spectrum anti-HIV-1 activity. An oral prodrug, L-sulfavirine, is approved in Russia, and the long-acting injectable formulation of this compound has now been developed in order to expand some of the dosing options.
This long-acting formulation was presented at CROI 2020 in a Phase 1 open-label safety, tolerability, and PK ascending dose study in healthy volunteers. Single and multiple doses ranging from 150 to 1,200 milligrams were administered IM once per month after a two-week lead-in of daily dosing of L-Savarine. And the PK results are summarized here. Single monthly injections of either 600 milligrams or 1200 milligrams achieved trough plasma concentrations greater than 21 to 35 days respectively, and then two consecutive monthly injections of 300 milligrams twice daily achieved um, target levels for more than four weeks and drug accumulation in plasma with well-tolerated and acceptable PK in healthy volunteers, suggesting that this may be yet another long-acting injectable compound that may be useful in future studies. So I'm just going to stop here and summarize that the pipeline for development of novel agents continues to evolve. Our current armamentarium suggests that there may be less need for new ARVs based on the availability of multiple well-tolerated and convenient regimens and decreasing rates of drug resistance. And with few exceptions, most of the new agents in development are targeting very novel mechanisms of action and long-acting formulations. So the promise of these agents, in addition to the promise of novel long-acting injectable formulations, are closer to reality. With fewer drugs, obviously fewer pills, but the monetary and resistance costs remain to be fully evaluated in longer-term follow-up from these studies. Thank you, and I'll stop for questions and answers here. Um, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Benson. And I wanted to summarize some of the questions that have been coming in. Um, one question that we had for you was, um, this is specifically against the, uh, for the capsid inhibitor GS6207, was there any resistance in against that compound? And does the study imply that there's a possibility that the capsid inhibitor could be given alone? So good morning or afternoon to everybody, wherever you are. Um, thank you for listening to my rather stilted discussion recorded. All of us are getting used to recording these talks. Let me just uh, go straight to the answer to that question at least in the data that have been presented both at last year's CROI and this year's CROI, there wasn't much in the way of discussion about resistance mutations. I think our experience with any of these compounds in the setting of antiviral therapy is that we would be reluctant to use them as single agents alone. I don't know that that will be true for the capsid inhibitor because it targets uh, several steps along the pathway of capsid assembly in the cytoplasm, but uh, suffice it to say, we have little information about the development of resistance. Um, and another question, uh, does BIT um, get into the CNS to your knowledge? Uh, very interested in CNS penetration of all these new drugs. That too would be an important critical piece of information that I think we do not yet have information about as well. So a lot of these compounds that I started off the discussion about have are really very early in their development phase. Um, 
much of the work has been done working out the pharmacokinetics formulations and the safety data from phase one and early phase two trials, but we have very little information about critical questions such as that one in penetrating the CNS and how these might best be used in clinical practice. I think as they proceed along the pathway of development, if they make it to phase three clinical trials without encountering obstacles along that pathway, we'll be better able to answer questions about resistance and CNS penetration. And then um, another question is, um, and I'm going to kind of change this question a little bit to ask, I think, something that's burning that we're, we all want to know. Uh, the question was around the um, whether the ropivirine was given IM or was it oral, um, orally given in the ALIS-2M and PLAR trials, and um, it was given as an injectable. But the question that we have and that people are asking is, do we know when these injectable formulations are going to be available uh, for treatment, uh, given the very positive results that you presented from Flare and Atlas and Atlas-2M. Yeah, and I think we have all been very anxious to see these emerge in clinical practice. In the original presentation of these data to the FDA last fall, we were all encouraged to think that we would have access to these agents for clinical practice by the end of last year. And unfortunately, the FDA deferred approval of the long-acting formulations of cabotegravir and rilpivirine um, pending further evaluation of manufacturing um, procedures. Didn't have anything to do with the efficacy or safety of the compounds, but there were still some questions about the manufacturing procedures for the drugs and the stability of those procedures. And those questions are under investigation at this point. I'm not privy to information about when the revised uh, information will go to the FDA for full approval of the compounds. Maybe other people on the call can join into the Q&A or provide that information if they know that but not something I'm aware of. We hope that the issues related to the manufacturing have been resolved and these compounds will be available um, shortly. Um, and I, I agree. I don't think I know either. <laughs> I don't think anyone knows, but I, I would say that possibly an 083 study, what we're not focusing on, here, but the uh, intramuscular cabotegravir injection every eight weeks that's been filed for by the uh, to the FDA for prevention may hasten approval, but we'll see. Um, Another question that's coming for you is, where do you think the nanocomposition of tenofovir will be used? And do you think that this could translate into lower bone and renal side effects? You know, I think that's an excellent question. When I was first going through, there was a presentation at last year's CROI also on a different formulation of tenofovir. It wasn't exactly this one. But when I was going through these data, the question occurs to me, we already have TAF that gets excellent intracellular levels and provides some protection in reducing some of the complications associated with tenofovir. And it's hard to tell exactly where this one will fit. It does um, achieve concentrations intracellularly, as you saw from the data presented. 
in, in doses that are about half of the doses that are required for use of TAF. And so I think that we hope that will translate into lower um, complication rates such as bone mineral density abnormalities or renal dysfunction that have been conventionally associated with um, the TDF formulations of, of tenofovir. But I don't know that we have enough information about this new nano formulation to understand yet whether that will translate into improved um, adverse event profiles. And then um, another, I think, great question is, uh, given that we give patients oral repivering at viral loads of less than 100,000, um, do you think that repivering and cabotegravir in starting out patients, people who are just starting therapy, should be provided only to those with viral loads less than 100,000? Well, that's, as you all know, that's an ongoing debate in the field about the best way to use these long-acting combinations. As you saw from the study designs, all of them started out with a loading period of up to four weeks, where they each got oral um, cabotegravir and relpivirine doses to raise concentrations. The studies that have been presented thus far suggest that the every eight-week dosing could potentially be associated with um, breakthrough viremia and higher rates of resistance, but those are preliminary data from other studies. And I think the data that you just saw presented at CROI this year um, confirmed the fact that viral breakthrough was very rare, very infrequent in both of the treatment arms. And I think with appropriate follow-up and, and appropriate um, attention being given to adherence that I think the risk of either of those um, viral breakthrough or development of resistance is relatively low. I think it remains to be seen what guidelines panels will do with these data. My guess is that they will start out with the recommendation to use them in individuals who have lower viral loads until we see more clinical practice data and clinical trial data looking at higher viral loads. Thank you so much. There's one final question, but I'll, I'll actually answer it. The food requirement is bypassed with the intramuscular injection uh, with ropivirin, which I think is an advantage. Um, we do have to end, and thank you so much for your talk, and we're going to turn it over now to the next talk in our presentations. Thank you. Thank you.